Welcome to Murder Archives, where we re-examine mysterious deaths, reimagine private lives, and give voice to long-forgotten victims of crime. I'm Emma Curtin, researcher, writer, and true crime enthusiast. This podcast represents the beginning of a broader conversation, a way to bring other perspectives into the investigation. This is Series 1, Fractured Silence, The Death of Norma Rees McLeod. If you haven't listened to Episode 1, go back to get a sense of Norma's last day. Spoiler alert, if you have listened, you'll know that Norma's death was no accident. And remember, if you think of something I've missed or want to suggest an alternate theory, email me your thoughts. Emma at murderarchives.com.au We've also included links in the episode descriptions and you can find more information on our website, murderarchives.com.au This includes a simple map which will help you navigate Norma's local area, really important for the next couple of episodes. After the post-mortem exam and the idea of accident being ruled out, the police considered the idea of a burglary gone wrong. Had Norma surprised a daylight prowler? It certainly seemed possible. Less than a year before Norma's death, her cousin Edith, who lived only four kilometres from the McLeod house, had been the victim of robbery. A thief had broken into the family home and stolen Edith's fur coat, a string of pearls, five dresses and four watches. There'd also been several thefts in the neighbourhood leading up to Norma's death. And this part of Turak was known as a favourite haunt for thieves. The McLeod house had also been a daylight target of robbery only a couple of years before. Mr McLeod told the Herald that when they'd been burgled two years ago, the thief had entered between 11am and 1pm and stolen jewels and clothing. The burglar had forced open a window, ransacked the house. This, he said, had been the second burglary in 10 days. Mr Moffat's home, which was two doors down from the McLeod's house, had also been burgled twice and ransacked. The term ransacking was often used in the newspaper accounts of Turak burglaries at the time. But the McLeod house on the day of Norma's death seemed far from ransacked. In fact, it was almost undisturbed. Strangely, I couldn't find any police records of the McLeod or Moffat burglaries. Had the records been destroyed or maybe never recorded in the first place? Only a year before Norma's death, there'd been several reports in the newspapers about the extensive number of robberies in Turak that seemed to have gone unnoticed because of a shortage of policemen. As we mentioned in the previous episode, the McLeod house stood next to a lane. This travelled parallel to the house and then at right angles behind the Turak Bowls Club, coming out at the other end of Mandeville Crescent. At this end, the lane was within easy reach of Morven Road, or, crossing the Crescent, continued on behind houses to exit at Clendon Road. The lane obviously provided a perfect escape route for an intruder. A side gate opened from the back garden of the McLeod house directly into the lane. Norma's bedroom window overlooked this laneway and was, according to the Herald, close enough to the ground to be accessible to a man. The Age also reported that a servant girl had been assaulted by two men and her handbag taken in the lane just a few months before Norma's death. So the laneway was marked out by the press as an obvious place of danger. 
Maybe a prowler had seen Mrs McLeod leave and assumed the house was empty. Mr McLeod told police that if Norma had found an intruder in the house, she would have put up a brave fight. She was courageous, cool and extremely resourceful. I am certain she offered resistance and the attack probably developed from her courageous questioning of the man. Mr McLeod thought it possible that his daughter may have tried to get away from her attacker and was dashing down the passage to her parents' room where he kept his service revolver. But Norma died with no signs of a struggle. This suggested that she hadn't seen the attack coming. More than 30 letters from the public sent to police presented a number of potential suspects. But most of them had very tenuous connections to the case. Letter writers seemed keener to solve their own problems rather than help find Norma's killer. For example, a letter writer using the name Ich Dien, meaning I serve in German, wrote, May I suggest that you interrogate or arrest on a vagrancy charge a man who is obviously of the criminal immigrant class, living at 12 Longmore Street, St Kilda. The householder is a Mrs Hagen, who is a widow, and this man has been boarding there for the past two weeks, but has not paid for the same. In addition, he has victimised several of the small shopkeepers in Middle Park. He does not work, but has been frequently seen watching houses in St Kilda. He is short and very thick-set, fair, curly hair. You will not be wasting time if you investigate this. It may solve the mystery of the Turek case. The association between crime and migrants, as if the two were inseparable, was not uncommon in this period and, sadly, still occasionally rears its ugly head today. We don't know whether the police followed this up or not. My suspicious mind wonders whether the letter writer was hoping to fix a problem of his own that actually had nothing to do with the McLeod case. After all, the association between this apparent criminal and the McLeod case is far from obvious. One writer, calling themselves the Fox, offered their own guilt. Writing three days after Norma's death, they announced to the police, I killed Norma McLeod. Catch me if you can. There can only really be three explanations for this confession. First, that this was indeed the killer, but the police had very little to go on in order to catch them. Second, that the writer was simply attention-seeking and got some sort of thrill out of confession. Or third, that the writer was trying to divert attention away from the real killer. However, this seems unlikely, as this note was written on the 12th of September, only three days after Norma's death, and police had made no suggestions as yet of a culprit. Personally, I'd put my money on option two. Self-confession was a surprisingly common response to a case attracting extensive media attention. The Jack the Ripper killings provide the most significant evidence of this. Closer to home, in 1920, a newspaper in New South Wales stated, Whenever a big murder mystery is engrossing public attention, someone is pretty sure to come along and give himself up for a crime of which he knows nothing. I spoke to retired detective Charlie Bazina about this response to well-publicised crime. Charlie spent 37 years in the Victoria Police Force, 17 of which involved investigating suspicious deaths. Policing in an investigation is intelligence-led. Mm. Your intelligence that comes in and the support from the community, you know, uh, with people making their own theories. People like to be investigators. It's not unusual to get people either ringing in or writing letters, you know, in a helpful way, 
but you look at them with suspicion anyway. And some are either authored by a name and an address. It would have made media and people want to get involved, either through a nuisance value or is the offender, in fact, writing a letter to the investigators becomes a bit of a cat and mouse situation. You know, uh, that's not unusual. So to get letters written in or contact made by certain witnesses or people that want to get involved either through a, a helpful situation, a distraction situation, or from an offender situation. So they are all the major things you look at to say, what is the motive behind this particular correspondence? It's a little piece of information that might trip up these authors or these people contacting the police to say, well, that was never released to the media, so therefore this author could well be our offender. But then you've got to work at strategies. How do we use a strategy to unearth this particular person? Is it the offender reaching out? Do we have some you know, psychological issues from these people? You know, they want notoriety. Talking of notoriety, we had one letter from the Fox who said, I killed Norman McLeod, catch me if you can. Yeah. Is that kind of a letter a common Yeah, it's response? not unusual. It's not unusual. As I said, again, that's, you look at it as either nuisance value, but you don't discount it. How far can we take it? We look at postmarks. We look at um, you know, where it was sent from. We leave it there, and we can say we can only take it so far and say, okay, we've got handwriting samples and the likes, or if it's a typewriter, they're going to have, give you certain characteristics and the likes. So eventually... You don't know the value of where the investigation is going to take you. You look at intelligence, what have you got in your information uh, holdings uh, within Victoria Police to say, you know, is there a fox known to it, is it an alias of someone mm -hmm. to try and identify this person, to eliminate them one way or the other. Don't ever discount it because once you just start discounting and not taking the seriousness of any contact you have is when you start forming a defence for any future court proceedings. So you can then have to answer it because if you don't answer it during the investigation... You can beat your bottom dollar, you'll be answering in the witness box. Other concerned citizens were less certain of the identity of the possible attacker, but were still hoping to help the police catch their man. Initially, the police told journalists that no suspicious character had been seen loitering in the area. But a couple of locals said otherwise. 59-year-old Minnie Smith lived in Morven Road with her 60-year-old sister Sophia. Their house sits opposite the furthest end of Mandeville Crescent, away from the McLeod house. A week after Norma's death, the younger Miss Smith called into the Russell Street Police Station, telling the constable that on the day of Miss McLeod's death, her sister saw a man in the Crescent who was a very bad-looking character. She also said she had other information relevant to the case. The policeman noted down this evidence, although what the other information Miss Smith had to give is unknown. According to The Age, detectives did interview occupants of adjoining houses, but I couldn't find notes in the police files to prove this. A scribbled note found in the files, however, seems to substantiate Miss Smith's sighting. While the note may have been recorded during one of the occupant interviews, it was scribbled on the back of another note, which suggests to me it was taken down from a phone call. Taken from 55-year-old Lillian Maynard, it indicates that between 3 and 4pm on the day of Norma's death, she'd seen a slim-built, average-height man in his early 20s walking down Morven Road towards the station. Turak train station is only a five-minute walk from that point on Morven Road. Was this a prowler running from the McLeod house? The man obviously looked suspicious enough for Mrs Maynard to take note. 
although we've all got our own opinions about what suspicious behaviour looks like. So it's hard to be sure whether this passerby was really up to no good. Equally, it's hard to know what Miss Smith meant by a bad-looking character. While Miss Smith's description is vague, a second sighting by Mrs Maynard does suggest that at least one man was seen in the vicinity, possibly two. I wondered whether the police followed up these leads or if they'd even given them any weight, but again I couldn't find any record that they did. I asked Charlie Bazina about how police normally handle tips from the public. There was a couple of calls made about suspicious characters being seen in the neighbourhood. Yep. How seriously would they have been taken? Very seriously, because you do look at the most obvious. The fact there was no signs of a burglary, you do you do look at saying, well, is a burglary gone wrong? What crimes have been happening in that particular area? Mm. That's a starting point, an avenue of inquiry. Um, so ultimately, those calls that come in and, and contacts made, they are taken seriously because they are an avenue of inquiry. Anyway, to me, the sightings were significant, but we'll come back to that in a later episode. Just as theories varied about who might have attacked Norma, so too did theories about the weapon used. Government pathologist Dr Mollison believed Norma had been struck by a flat instrument with a broad surface. The iron that had been the focus of the accident theories was fairly quickly ruled out as the offending object. But there's no record, or at least none I could find, to explain why the police reached this conclusion. Presumably, as Mrs MacLeod had told the police that when she came home the iron had been put away, it was not considered a likely weapon. Another theory was that it was a golf club, although this didn't fit the broad instrument category noted by Mollison. The day after Norma's death, the Herald reported that detectives thought she was probably struck by a brick or an instrument wrapped in cloth. But again, there's no indication why they thought this. Was something found to suggest this? If so, it wasn't recorded. Later, the paper suggested that the weapon might have been a beer bottle, but again, there was nothing in the police notes to say that a bottle had been found. The Herald had also gathered information from somewhere that the murderer may have armed himself with a length of rubber hose that was lying by the front gate of the MacLeod's house, loaded it with sand or soil and used it as a cosh. But if a burglar had been surprised, this seems a lot of trouble to go to on the spur of the moment. Conjecture about the weapon would continue until a month after Norma's death when it was reported that the police had taken possession of a cricket bat. But more of that later. I asked forensic pathologist Byron Collins for his thoughts on possible weapons. One of the things that also struck me is why the police never considered the iron. I mean, the iron is a blunt object, presumably. Is there any rationale from, from a pathologist's perspective? as to why that would have been excluded? No, look, I think any instrument that falls into a, or a type of blunt instrument, but I think Dr Mollison's description or interpretation is, is reasonable that it was a flat, broad, flat surface rather than a relatively angulated blunt object such as the angle of a brick because that would be likely to have produced some degree of laceration or abrasion. But 
No, I, I would have thought that anything that was a blunt object would be fair play to examine, particularly to look for fingerprints and any trace evidence. Now, there would be unlikely to be any um, blood on, on the blunt object because Dr. Mollison hasn't described any bleeding site on the, on the skull or the scalp, but there may well have been some crushed hairs or something of that nature, particularly if the surface of the blunt instrument was slightly roughened and could pick up some hair. So I would have thought that anything that was at the scene would have been and should have been examined properly. So the cricket bat obviously fits that description. Yes, it does, but it's certainly not the only object around. Regardless of the weapon used and the various opinions about the culprit, the burglary theory had some holes. To begin with, nothing had been stolen and the house seemed undisturbed, not ransacked like the homes in other robberies. Of course, this might simply be because the robber was disturbed by Norma before he began his work. A couple of newspaper reports claimed that Mr McLeod had said the contents of a toolbox in Reese's dressing room had been moved, but once again this didn't appear in official police reports. More importantly, the location of Norma's body raised some questions. Edith, Norma's mother, stated, When I found her on the bed, she was lying on her back, but slightly more on her heart side. Her shoes were off, lying at the foot of the bed, Lying on her forehead and over her right eye was a pair of my son Reese's underpants. They were wet. I remember now the pillow on which she was lying had been taken from under the counterpane where it was always put when the bed was made and placed on top of the counterpane. Her head was on the pillow. Senior Detective Lee, according to the Herald, thought Norma may have been attacked near her bed as she would have been too weak to walk any distance after receiving the blow. But, it was argued, she didn't appear to have simply fallen onto the bed. This raised one of the most contentious issues of the case. Could Norma have walked after such a violent attack? If she could have walked, then after being attacked, she got herself onto the bed, removed the pillow from under the counterpane, grabbed the nearest thing to hand as a compress, which we now know were her brother's underpants, wet them and placed them on her head. But to many it seemed unlikely that Norma would have been able to settle herself with such care. Having been concussed myself, I know it's more likely that she would have just slumped on the bed, lying where she fell. In my opinion, she couldn't have been able to do much else. Others at the time expressed the belief that Norma must have been helped to her bed. As reported in The Age... A doctor, who is a friend of the MacLeod family, said that the position of the body at the time of the discovery did not indicate that the girl had staggered to the bed and fallen limply onto the sheets. Everything pointed to the girl being carried and laid gently on the bed. Which doctor this was we don't know, but it was possibly Dr Major who was both a friend of the family and had been at Norma's bedside during her last hours. Miss William, the MacLeod's neighbour who'd also come to Norma's aid, stated in the inquest that the deceased was not lying naturally on her bed. Her head was bent forward onto her chest, so she'd eased her head and made her comfortable. But this in itself suggested that Norma had not put herself in that position. More importantly, the eminent pathologist Dr Mollison had presented serious doubt about the possibility of Norma walking. Immediately the deceased received that injury, 
She would have been rendered insensible for the time being. Paralysis would not necessarily set in then. She might recover for a time and again become unconscious. I cannot say how long it would be before she would become conscious. It is quite possible that she would recover consciousness, but I do not think it is probable. Asked, do I think it possible for her to have walked after having received a blow like that, I say, it is possible, if she regained consciousness, but not likely. Norma's cousin, Dr Jock Williams, agreed with Mollison's assessment. Asked for my opinion as a medical man whether the deceased could have walked from the back veranda to her bedroom and lay down on her bed and wrapped her head in a cold compress after those injuries. I say people with fractured skulls do queer things, but it is not probable that she did. It is not impossible, but it is not probable. Dr Jock's qualifications and character made him a force to be reckoned with, and his opinion was highly regarded. But what would a current practitioner think? Here's pathologist Byron Collins again. It is fascinating in relation to the study of individuals who have received what one might say are significant head injuries as to what that particular individual can do afterwards. And there is a huge variety from individual to individual, even in if somebody had sustained the same type of injury with the same amount of force, the victim's response might be quite different in relation to the physiology that occurs in the brain. My view is, and I think it's probably the same as the other medicos who were involved in this particular case originally, is that having regard to the fact that there is extensive skull fracturing, then and I've said that that would require a significant force to produce that fracturing, it's guineas to a gooseberry that she would have had considerably decreased conscious state, if not unconsciousness, immediately. However, that concussion effect will probably only be transitory, and it may last seconds or minutes. I think unconsciousness would be unlikely to have lasted hours in this case, and the time frame doesn't fit. Certainly, you couldn't exclude a number of minutes then it is likely that she would have recovered to some extent and then succumbed following the development of the secondary processes that occur on the surface of the brain in relation to the bleeding, which then compromises the important cardiorespiratory centres in the brainstem, and this will result in cardiorespiratory arrest and death if not relieved. Do you think then it would be possible for her not only walked to the bed, got herself a compress that just happened to be a pair of underpants, moved the pillow from under the counterpane, took her shoes off, set herself straight. Given the extent of the injury, do you think that's feasible? Yes, I think it's feasible in the strict sense, but I think it gets to possibility, but not probability, I think, in the, in the legal parlance. I could envisage somebody in a groggy state being able to do some relatively simple tasks which had some meaning and I would have thought that following the sustaining of the blow she would be in pain she would have a headache at least but that doesn't mean to say that she couldn't carry out some relatively purposeful activity. Why does it matter? Why is it so important to determine whether she could have walked? Well if Norma couldn't have walked how did she get to the bed? Arguments circulated that perhaps the fatal blow had only been delivered to silence Norma, not to murder her. After the attack, the culprit immediately felt remorseful. 
Would an intruder really stop to make Norma comfortable? As the Australasian reporter said, with some dramatic flair, It seemed hardly likely that a ruffianly assailant, whose first thought would have been to escape after the attack, would have been so solicitous. Senior Detective Lee agreed, drawing on his own experience of criminals. It is very unlikely that her assailant carried her to the bed. The severity of his blow would have felled the woman, after which he would not have risked waiting in the house, but would have disappeared at once. One anonymous letter writer presented a possible answer to this conundrum, which really made me smile. The culprit could be a well-known woman housebreaker with a gushing manner and gold teeth. No man would clean up. Personally, I don't find the idea of a guilt-ridden female intruder any more convincing than a male acting this way. Do you? Not only was there doubt about an intruder acting remorsefully, there were also no indications that an outsider had been in the house. Newspapers reported that detectives had failed to find any stranger's fingerprints. The Victorian Police Fingerprint Branch had been established in 1903, but I wondered how much would-be thieves would know about the power of unique fingerprints in 1929. Of course, they may well have worn gloves, as any crime fiction reader worth his salt today knows to do. So a lack of fingerprints may not mean the absence of a prowler. However, the likelihood of Norma being attacked by a thief fingerprint savvy or otherwise, was becoming more and more remote. All indications were that if she couldn't have walked and no burglar would have been so humane as to take care of her, then she must have been carried by someone who did care for her. It would follow then that she was killed by someone she knew, someone who had perhaps unintentionally caused her injuries and felt enough repentance to try and save her, but not to confess. Whoever carried Norma to her bed certainly knew which of the three beds in the house belonged to her. A random guess that proved correct is hardly likely. An anonymous letter sent to Senior Detective Lee on the 19th of October, six weeks after Norma's death, summed up a growing realisation. Looks like someone who felt safe tried to bring her around. I would cross-question a little more members in the McLeod house, as it's only wasting time and money looking for would-be robbers. Investigations would now turn inward, focusing on those who knew Norma best. The questions raised about the likelihood of burglary and suggestions of something closer to home became even more intense when the police turned their attention to the anonymous letter mentioned in episode one. This caused them to rethink their theories and took them down a path that many, including myself, would challenge. In the next episode, we'll go to the inquest held at the Melbourne Morgue on Batman Avenue on the 1st of November, 1929. There was one person in particular that held police attention. This was Norma's mother, Edith McLeod. Join us next time as we finally reveal the apparently incriminating contents of that anonymous letter and the reasons offered for Mrs McLeod's guilt.
In the meantime, here are some things to think about. The theory that it was a burglary gone wrong. The possibility of Norma walking to her own bed. Or are we on the wrong track? Have we missed anything? If you want to share your thoughts, contact me by email anytime. Emma at murderarchives.com.au I'm Amelia Ball, editor of Halliday Wine Companion magazine, and you can join me for our brand new Halliday podcast as we rummage through cellars and get the experts' knowledge you need to get the most out of your cellar. Taking a bottle of wine, putting it into a cool, dark place for a long time, crossing all your fingers and toes, and it coming out beautiful. Uh, we recently sold one for $300,000. Hear the Halliday Wine Companion podcast where you're listening now, or go to winecompanion.com.au.